The Theonauts, episode 58. The one where daddy sing bass, mama sing tenor. The Theonauts podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you Theo Shop quartets out there. <laughs> I'm David Gaddy. I'm Riley Neal. And together we are... The, the Theo Knots. Yes, Riley Neal is in the studio again. Yep. How you doing, Riley? Oh, I'm doing great. He is going to be setting in on occasion for uh, Jeremiah here. Jeremiah is dealing with a full plate. He's a busy man. It's it's <laughs> summer and he's a youth minister. So. Yes. So uh, so anyway, he's going to be stepping in and out on us uh, for the for the next little bit. So we're going to be mixing it up and having all kinds of fun stuff in his absence. Yep. <laughs> So anyway, uh, Riley's here with us, and we're going to be uh, going over uh, this awesome topic that was requested of us. So um, you're back in town after, on, a, on hiatus from college, right? I am. So how's all that going? You know, I'm, uh, my girlfriend was asking me the other day um, if I was looking forward to going back, if I was wanting to stay home and stuff, and I'm, I have this big dichotomy i'm really really i'm excited to get back into extracurriculars and church and leading worship and living with the guys in my hall which is awesome but then i think about the classes i'm going to be taking i'm like oh man it's going to be <laughs> so much work oh yeah i'm taking a uh first semester of ancient greek so <laughs> oh, I've, I've heard that that that's brutal and i've also <laughs> got i've got cal 2 and um Intro to ministry and Old Testament because New Testament was full. <laughs> oh wow! Well, that's gonna you're gonna come back with all kinds of you'll be speaking Greek and everything else. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a blast. So, man, I've been doing nothing but remodeling this past yeah. week. So we're making this coffee shop into something new, and and uh, I spent all weekend down here working on it. So what do you think so far? Oh, it looks great. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, it's coming along. We're going to end up uh, having some uh, sandwiches and whatnot here. And that means I can come down whenever I'm on lunch break. Yeah, you, a sandwich. there you go. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I've got some feedback, actually. Voicemail. It's not real voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> Fake it's, voicemail? Yes. <laughs> was it a uh, was it a sales sales voicemail? <laughs> no, I didn't get any of those. I actually I did get one of those, and, and I was like, oh, I've already played. I've already pulled that that stick one time before, <laughs> so I didn't actually keep it. I just ditched it. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, Philip from um, the, he is a new listener that heard about us through Finding Christ in Cinema. And I don't know, you ever listened to Finding Christ in Cinema yet? I think I've only listened to one so far. Uh, just get over there and, and, and patronize those guys. And I know. I mean, now that it's summer, I need to get caught up on all my podcasting because during the school year, it's so hard because every hour seems like it's taken up. But summer, I can listen to quite a bit. So. Yeah, that'd be cool. Well, anyway, uh, 
Philip is a uh, as, as as they call him a patron saint over there. Yeah, he he's a contributor, and uh, he has he wrote us an email. It says, "Hey guys, I've been wanting to send some feedback in a, in for a while." I found your show via Finding Christ in Cinema, and I really dig your take on current events with a Bible study mixed in. I had a topic idea I'd like to hear you guys talk about someday, but this is probably way too late to be timely. However, I'd like to hear you discuss the American Revolution in light of Scripture, and if you guys Ooh. think it was a just war or not, and, and why. <laughs> we need oh, we need to do all three of us for that one, because <laughs> Jeremiah's got some, oh, he's got a cool opinion on that. Yeah. This is the very idea of the revolution being a good thing is so ingrained in our culture that when I first heard it suggested that it was not a just war, it took me aback. Thinking about it, though, I can't come up with a biblical justification for it, especially considering the first century Roman Empire under which the New Testament was written compared to the 18th century British Empire. And the conflation of Christianity with American patriotism is also a related topic I'd like to hear you guys discuss. I appreciate and respect the high view of Scripture on your show and look forward to listening to more. Thanks, Philip. Oh, and by the way, he says he's a Cowboys fan behind enemy lines in the <laughs> occupied greater Houston area. <laughs> wow. Man, Philip, that is an awesome topic idea. That seems like that's a really cool outworking of what you guys talked about in the, the war. Yes, or um, self-defense and war episodes. Yeah, so. and I kind of pointed him to that episode, you know, to because we did get some feedback kind of like this. Uh, in fact, your mom actually called in. With, I actually with got in an comment. argument with her and the rest of my family about this whole thing. Too, really, so, really, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that'd be a good one. Yeah. Well, uh, she was she was definitely when she called in, she was definitely on the side that it was it was a just war, uh, at least at that point. And so, you know, there's tons of stuff to talk about. But one of the things that, that Jeremiah and I have both mentioned on the show before is that, um, is that this idea that, that uh, we, are, we have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to me, is not a biblical concept. Yeah, I um, remember that. Yeah, and, and, and although it's a great thing, I'm not, you know, saying, I love my freedom. And that's why I'm torn about it, because we wouldn't have the freedom without the revolution. Yeah, it's a good thing for the government to protect. Right. I see what you're saying. So it's a paradox of sorts, because I, I, I want my freedom, but then again, I can't see where I can find justification for how it came about going through Scripture. Yeah. Because we're, if there was any oppressive regime that was committing atrocities and killing children and killing Christians and, and, and all that. It was the Roman Empire. For sure. Right? Mm -hmm. And there was never any call to take action against the Roman Empire to make a theocracy. <laughs> That's something I actually thought about the other day with the, uh, the gay marriage ruling and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I thought, you know, how upset really would, would Paul and Peter have been had the Roman Empire made a law that was contrary to Christianity? That Not, was part of their regular life, right? You know? Right. That's, I mean, they it, were used to it, and it was perfectly fine for that same type of thing. I mean, we act like this is new. This isn't new. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this was happening way back then as well. You know, I mean, it was uh, homosexuality was accepted in that culture, sure, um, and it, pedophilia was accepted in that culture, and uh, and I'm already seeing. <laughs> 
<laughs> calls for, to make pedophilia uh, legalized in certain situations. Yeah, or um, or uh, so. polygamy. Yes, you'll see that. Yes, and so all of that, you know, it's nothing new. And so, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think that uh, that you would have seen Paul's Facebook page, you know, filled with Confederate flags and Skittles <laughs> packages. <laughs> But uh, but thanks for uh, writing in, Philip. We hope to hear from you uh, more. Call in, give us a voicemail, something like that, and uh, we'd love to to hear hear more from you. And uh, we may go into uh, that topic and talk about it further. We've we've talked about it here and there, but we've never actually just had a dedicated show, you know, about that. So it would be it would be fun to talk about it. We'd probably get in all kinds of trouble with all our <laughs> our conservative friends, but uh, hey. Okay, the, the next thing that I've got is a tweet that came from um, um, an actually an online friend uh, of mine that I just thought was really cool. She has a company of her own called Sync Designs, and she, and she tweets out informative and hilarious Christian podcast every week and put a link to our show. And I just thought oh, that was really, that's awesome. really nice. And so I thanked her for it. And her response was, what you do is so good, I just have to share it. Wow. That's awesome. Thanks, Elizabeth. That was uh, very kind of you. And um, we uh, hope that we can continue to to um, live up to that high standard that you're throwing (laughs) out there. So, well, you ready to do some news? Uh, Let's do it. All right. And now, the news. Well, Riley's got some news. I've got some news, so we'll just talk a little bit about the news. <laughs> so, what do you what do you got over there? All right, I've got this uh, this one from USA Today. Uh, the headline says, "Texas Attorney General says judges can deny same sex marriage license," and this is uh, really interesting because uh, the Attorney General Ken Paxton is talking about specifically for um, religious reasons. Uh, it says. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton issued a statement Sunday saying state workers can refuse to issue same-sex marriage license if doing so is contrary to his or her religious beliefs. <laughs> so what does that mean? So you pass it on to the to the next I don't, guy in the I don't know. <laughs> that that I don't doesn't know you, have a problem with it? Do you it? default to somebody else or not? <laughs> yeah, that's... See, that's the type of thing that, uh, that all of these, um, these, these issues raise is... Is because you've got all these people working in in government offices that uh-huh. have to do all of this, and it's like, do they lose their job? You know, I mm-hmm. mean, is this if it should infringes, they step down? Should they fight it? Um, yeah, it, does it infringe on their on their religious rights and under how do, the constitution? Yeah, and how does this <laughs> conflict with um, Romans thirteen? At what point do we submit to the government authority, and at what point do we say I'm violating a biblical principle? I, I me personally, right. I'm having to violate a biblical principle, and I need to stop. Mm-hmm. So that's a hard question. Yeah, of course, you know that's a question that falls into tons of categories. I mean, you know, uh, Christians working at movie theaters or working at bars or working at you well, know it, whatever. It also ties into this idea that uh, you see Jonathan Edwards and some other guys talk about about. Um, degrees of separation from evil. How mm. many degrees do I need to put myself between myself? You know, do I need to? Especially when know, evil surrounds us by so much. You know, I mean, it's like, you, you, yeah, 
like at one point, you know, whenever uh, Paul said, I didn't tell you to separate from the world that does evil because mm-hmm. that would mean you would have to leave the world. Yeah, and what or to do so. the conclusion Edwards eventually came to is it's impossible to have, I mean, I'm not going to buy anything or do anything that's contrary to the Bible, but as far as supporting people that do that, I can't avoid it. Right. I can't avoid buying my groceries from some guy who's right. you know, and, and that's a slave kind of, owner or whatever. And that's kind of the same thing that we're you know up against. You go to a grocery store or you go to a uh, convenience store that sells pornography and mm-hmm. you're buying all you're buying is milk. Yeah, but, but hey, or you see it on the like Sports Illustrated. Do I subscribe to Sports Illustrated and throw away the swimsuit issue because I'm against that, or yeah, do I boycott them? Well, that's a tricky thing, and I think it all gets down to that um, that you know the whole issue of of where your conscience you know is on that sort of thing. Um, uh huh. You know, it, it can you do a lot of good by not abstaining from things that puts you in a place where you can be a teaching tool. See, that's another thing that pops up, you know, I mean, I've, you know, people make arguments that, uh, yeah, I'll work at a bar because those are the people that need to help, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, And so, you know, but are you an enabler or whatever? So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, hmm. So what do you do? You're the, you're the judge and the ruling gets passed down. What do you, what do you do when you're asked to issue the license? Yeah, that's that's a, a, a good question because you know I've I've officiated marriages, and so you know I've even thought about that. You know, if I have some, you know, someone asked me if I would officiate, I'd have to probably say, you know, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just one of those. Yeah, you're gonna have all these what ifs that pop up with uh, the cake makers keep coming up. You know, the bakeries, <laughs> See, and that that seems like such a <laughs> tiny thing to me. But. I know. <laughs> And I got a friend who's a professional photographer, you know, and she's she's still kind of up in the air about it, too. She's like, you know, do I take pictures if I'm being hired to do this, you know, um, mm-hmm. at a wedding? And and uh, it just raises all kinds of, of quandaries like that. So, yeah. What do you have? Okay. Uh, well, I've got more uh, uh, Supreme Court stuff. Yep. <laughs> and Texas. <laughs> Texas is just, you know... We're, we're just kind of making all kinds of waves, I guess. But uh, apparently there are some law book, laws on the books in Texas that have caused some abortion clinics to, ha- to have to close down. Yeah. And this has gone before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled uh, to allow these Texas abortion clinics to stay open. <laughs> so Five, the, four, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> Consistently. <laughs> And so it says, uh, today the U.S. Supreme Court announced its decisions to allow nine abortion clinics in Texas to remain open, according to the New York Times. A recent law in the state effectively closed these clinics. The case in question revolves around two parts of a Texas law that establish requirements on abortion clinics. One, the abortion clinics must meet the standards of ambulatory surgical centers. And two, doctors performing abortions must have admitting privileges at local at a local hospital. So the court voted five to four with, obviously, Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito voting against to stay the order while justices consider whether or not to hear an appeal to the state law and the court stay uh, of the Texas red, uh, restriction strongly indicates that it will consider abortion rights during its next term. Okay, so this is, they're not overturning the law. 
they're suspending it until they can review it. Right. Okay. They, they are suspending it so that the clinics can stay open. For now. While they, right, while mm. they review the, the, the laws. But once again, you're getting into this whole state's rights yeah. you know, issues. I mean, mm-hmm. does Texas not have the right to put laws in place to dictate how these clinics are to operate? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, because it sounds to me like those two things that were listed there aren't overly oppressive i mean it's like do you have ambulatory surgical centers i mean and i, and I can even see the reasoning behind that if there's a medical emergency during an abortion what do you do you ship her off to local hospital or whatever or can you or do you have the facilities to to take care of whatever the problem is yeah that's that's an interesting thing that that's the thing that gives me the most concern with these supreme court rulings coming down is not the outcome. I mean, most most of these things I see is inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's the way that they're doing it and circumventing states' rights. Right. So, and and you know, once again, this goes back to you know the Christian. How much involvement does do we as Christians, you know, take in all this? Obviously, yeah. we have the right to vote in this country, and we can voice our opinions to try and push that, you know push that agenda forward sure. but whatever the outcome comes you know and we we'll have to deal with it and yep. uh, and uh, you know going back to is it worth revolt <laughs> yeah no. i've been i've been reading a pretty cool book or i, fi- I finished a pretty <clears throat> cool book recently called a uh, total church mm-hmm. and it's written by some church planners in england and it's so cool because they're so far ahead because they're already talking about what does ministry look like in a post-christian culture oh really because there i mean they're, I mean, I think this book is like 2008, and they're still 10 years ahead of where we are as far as the popular opinion to Christianity and the way it's treated in the media and stuff, mm-hmm. which is a really good read. So, Oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah, that sounds really cool because I, I think that that's how, I mean, we're heading in that direction. We're, we're on the... Um, the downward slide of that sinusoidal pattern that yeah that that we've been in you know since creation really, uh, and it's really hard for us because most of the people living today can't remember a time whenever we had oppression uh, mm-hmm. of any sort, and so it's almost like this is the worst time in history. Well, it's not the worst time in history. It's <laughs> it's just we're we're starting to see that downward slope in that in the in the pattern again. Yeah. Uh, the other news item I've got is that NBC cans The Apprentice and beauty pageants after Donald Trump's immigration comments. So NBC has a message for the Donald. You're fired. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Take that, Donald. <laughs> the network has severed ties with the controversial businessman Donald Trump. TV host and presidential candidate follow, following comments he made about immigrants to the U.S. at a recent campaign speech. He said, the U.S. has become a dumping ground for everyone else's problems. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're, sending, they're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems uh, with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. <laughs> <laughs> right there at the end. Just, just little gonna, caveat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Throw that out there. So in a statement, NBC said, due to the recent derogatory statements by Donald Trump regarding immigrants, NBC Universal is ending its business relationship with Mr. Trump. The networks will no longer air the affiliated beauty pageants, Miss Universe and Miss America. 
and has canceled the long-running reality series The Apprentice. So, just seems like uh, it's getting to the point. I just got to laugh, but yeah, the media like so so often now trying to be politically correct police of everyone. <laughs> right, you can't endorse anyone who says anything controversial. It's right. It's it's getting to the point where okay, does The Apprentice make money? Does the beauty pageants make money? Yeah, I'm sure that they make a. I mean, The Apprentice is a very successful show. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost like we're getting to the point now where political correctness is so strong that we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. So it doesn't matter if that's profit that we're losing. Either that, or they're afraid to lose profit because of backlash. I guess. Well, that 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 could be true. Um, but it seems to me like if you're if if you're going you you would do other steps prior to canceling. Yeah. You know, I the show, that. if you were, because you'd want to feel out to see, oh, what's the public's response to this going to be? Yeah. You know, and if ratings start to fall, then you deal with it. But no, it's like right out of the gate. And we're, and we're, we're, we're knocking off the beauty pageants. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I'm sure all those, those ladies are like, thanks, Donald. <laughs> so anyway, that's all I got. Let's talk about Harmony. So, um, we're going to talk about the Harmony of the, of the Gospels. And uh, this was, as I said, it was a, it was a request. Uh, it's actually about six months old. <laughs> finally <laughs> so getting around finally, to that request. Finally getting around to it. Uh, yeah, I had, we, had, um, we had someone email in wanting us to, uh, to touch on the Harmony of the Gospels, mainly because of the criticism that okay that comes in reference to they don't agree cool because that's what i deal with yeah <laughs> me too so um <clears throat> the the biggest thing is uh there's a lot of of atheistic arguments that the bible's inconsistent the bible is contradictory to itself um and especially whenever you have the four gospels telling us roughly the same story but yet not quite in the same uh-huh. wording and mannerisms, so it becomes this big, huge uh, thing. Is like, oh yeah, there's there's meat for the fodder or, or fodder for the argument, where it's like, okay, we're we're going to uh, going to prove that the Bible is wrong because uh, the number of people that showed up at the tomb, at the resurrection, is not consistent, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and things of that nature. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. Um, first off, let's talk about what we mean by harmony. This is not necessarily a biblical term, but often you hear this this referred to as the harmony of the gospels, which is what we're calling this particular yeah episode as well. And I I think that that's very fitting um, to to understanding the differences in the synoptic gospels and John as well, and how they all uh-huh. how they all work together. Uh, so first off, when we talk about harmony, um, think about what that means from the standpoint of like a barbershop quartet or <laughs> something like that. So you got yep. you got four parts. You've got soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. Now you're singing the same song, but you're not 
singing the exact same notes. Mm-hmm. Because they're in uh, harmonious relationships to each other. Correct. Correct. And it's just so you like... you get a more full sound. Yes. So you're getting a fuller picture of the song. The song is more beautiful because you have all these different notes that all make a harmonious sound. So, And the difference between that and it's almost like everyone expects the four Gospels to be in unison instead of harmony. Mm-hmm. Unison being we're singing, we're all singing the same note. So uh, at that point, it becomes a Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. We're looking for it to be identical. <laughs> right, right. So instead of it breaking up and being fuller and being able to see a broader picture of what the song is, we're, they want it to be this narrow, you know, uh, everything's, uh-huh. everything's the same. If, if everything was to be in unison, we wouldn't need four of them. And, and, uh, and so I think that there is an important point as to why there are uh, four of them. <clears throat> so um, one of the, the things you said you found um, was in reference to, uh, I think it was, you said it was Irenaeus that was talking about the, the, the four beasts or yeah. whatever. Is it, is it Revelation or Ezekiel that he was drawing from there? I can't remember There's which both. one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> there is uh, some imagery that is consistent uh, among uh, the prophets as to what's at the throne of God, uh-huh. and, and there are, and it's told a little differently. But um, the first reference to it actually is kind of obscure, and it comes from Numbers, the second chapter. Um, and we talked about this in our num- numerology episode way back. But uh, mm-hmm. have you ever seen the? Um, the type and shadow of the camp of Israel that comes from Numbers 2? Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, the the cross yeah. imagery? Okay, right, yeah. Right. Okay, so yeah, this is a, a, a something that has popped up. Uh, you'll see it in, in Bible studies every now and then. Um, but Roman, or Numbers 2 is one of these, um, is one of these, these chapters that if you're going through and reading, you know, your daily reading, and trying to get through the whole book of the Bible, it's one of those that you probably fell asleep through, or you just skimmed as fast as you could because it's it lives up to the name of the book. It's just a bunch of numbers, numbers. <laughs> and it is God uh, telling uh, Abraham and company how to—I mean Moses and company—how to pitch their camp. Yeah, and he tells them which tribes need to be where and what the population of each tribe is. And mm-hmm. and all this, you know, some of them are going to be north, some of them are going to be south, some of them are going to be east, and some are west, and of the of the tabernacle. And in doing so, if we take all those numbers and we crunch together, we give a a, a camp an average size per uh-huh. m- per number, and we extrapolate extrapolate that the size of it is uh, the shape of a cross. If you were to fly over the camp of Israel in a helicopter, you'd see the Which cross crazy. Yeah, mm-hmm. laying there on the ground. And right there in the middle of it is the tabernacle where sacrifice for and sins. And the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, the, the Shekinah glory. All that is happening right there mm-hmm. in the middle of it. Okay, well, one of the cool things about it also is not only does he tell them which tribes are to camp on which side, but it's like three tribes on each side because there's 12 tribes uh-huh. and four sides and 
he only wants them to fly under one sigil. Now, each tribe had a banner that they had, that they flew uh-huh. with a symbol on it. And uh, so he instructs them which sigil, which flag they should fly in the camp. So uh, the, the four tribes that he gives the right uh-huh. to fly their flags are Judah, Ephraim, Reuben, and Dan. Now the symbols on their uh, of those tribes is Judah is a lion, Ephraim is um, I believe he is an ox, Reuben is a man, and Dan is an eagle or a snake. So hmm. f- for the case of uh, pro- at this time it would have been an eagle. It didn't become a snake until um, Dan started going some. Weird ways. Okay. So, <laughs> so, uh, so you have these these four images uh, on this cross. <laughs> so you have these 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 four things, and these four images also show up in Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel ten, uh, verse fourteen. And I'm looking at the any no ESV here. It says, "In every one." Had he seen he seen cherubim uh, angels? He says, and every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third face was the face of a lion, and the fourth was the face of an eagle. Okay, some translations there will say uh, uh, the ox for the first one. So, mm-hmm. um, so you have these same four beasts showing up uh, in Revelation, the fourth chapter. Um, one of the first thing John sees is the throne room, and he describes living creatures that he sees around the throne. It says in verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So these same mm-hmm. four images keep coming up. And because of these things, it's been traditional each one of these is tied to each one of the gospel accounts. Okay. Okay. So, and, and it ties into the reason why the image shows up is because of what the writers were intending when they wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, you know, what their, mm-hmm. what their, their goals were. So which one is matching with which gospel? Okay. So Matthew is traditionally the lion. And the reason, uh-huh. the reason why is because Matthew's intention in writing this is not to just tell you the story of Jesus, which is how we kind of think of it, but to tell the Jews that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah and King. Okay, so that's the tribe of Judah. Mm-hmm. So he's all about, yeah, Matthew's he- constantly saying, so that the prophecy may be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And he traces the kingly lineage yes and okay gotcha yeah so so there is this this huge leaning on throughout matthew's writings about the messiah and Mm -hmm. and that jesus is the messiah mark um is usually associated with the ox and the reason why is because mark's whole purpose is to show that jesus was a servant Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of things in Mark. You don't see a lot of the details that show up in like Jesus's uh, sermons aren't really prevalent there. Uh, his birth isn't there. Uh, there's he's like focused on 
<clears throat> the the servant side uh-huh. of Jesus. Is there a sacrificial element to the ox also? Uh, I would think so, yeah. Because I know Mark focuses, I think the passion narrative is half of Mark. It's a huge chunk. Right, right. Yeah, and that, that, that would play in as well because uh, there were, you know, sacrificial uh, oxen, you know, as mm-hmm. well. And uh, so then you got uh, Luke. Luke is, is usually the symbol of a, of a man. And Luke himself was a physician. Uh-huh. So he was focused on the physical side of humanity and taking care of people. He wrote uh, this probably as a defensive writing for Paul's um, trials. Okay. Uh, it, we don't know that for sure, but he writes it to a guy named uh, Theophilus, who he also addresses the book of Acts, Acts. to. Uh-huh. And um, it's very, um, I don't want to say pro-Roman, but it is not adverse to Roman uh-huh. <laughs> living. So it's almost like he's trying to make a point that the Jews were, you know, the, the, the ones that were in the, the wrong in yeah. the story and not the Romans. And um, so, but Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus. You get a lot of yeah, th- definitely a lot of things about Jesus from a human standpoint. And his compassion to everyone, I think, is something that stood out to me when I mm-hmm. when I read Luke. Yes, and well, that and it it plays in perfectly with that. Uh, for example, his the birth. We get more about Jesus's birth itself in Luke, mm-hmm. and. Uh, well, that would make sense. He's a physician. He, yeah. you know, that's an important thing, and um, the human side of Jesus' suffering and and that sort of thing. John obviously is is always the oddball out. It's the non-synoptic <laughs> gospel, um, and, but it is usually in, uh, uses the symbol of the eagle. So traditionally, the eagle has been associated with with John, and that's because uh, the eagle is a symbol of deity. And that's exactly what John is about. Jesus is God. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And I love the way Luke and John work together there. Mm -hmm. Just like you were talking about harmony, they go together to give you a balanced understanding. Jesus is so, you know, he's so human. He's compassionate. um, He's willing to associate with the lowly. Yet Jesus is divine. He's existing before everything with God in the beginning. And when you get that all meshed together, you have such an awesome picture of who he is. Right. All man, all God. I mean, that's, yeah, and, and so that's perfect. Um, however, if all you had was John, you wouldn't get the humanity side of Jesus. If all you had was Luke, you wouldn't get the godly side of Jesus as much. And uh-huh. and so it's like, it's, it really is like a harmonious song, like different parts in harmony of a song in that, we can see Jesus as Messiah. We can see Jesus as a servant. We can see him as a man and we can see him as God all because these authors told the story from that perspective. Uh-huh. And so uh, given that not every single little detail is precisely the same in these, these writings and that causes heartburn people. Um, and but one of the things I think that that we're kind of missing out on there is, is that we forget the Jewishness of this writing, and the Hebrew the, the the Hebrew way of thinking, which was very poetic, very symbolic, very mm-hmm. artistic, uh, 
numbers were huge, <laughs> had a huge importance. And so a lot of times, minuscule details would be sacrificed in order to maintain a symbol or to maintain um, a, a number, a specific mm -hmm. number that represented something greater. And so we, as, anal you know, uh, with our analytic minds, we want to like precisely pick it apart <laughs> and all this. And it really wasn't written with that type of thing in mind. Instead, they wrote it to show something, to, to, to give meaning and symbology to it, to show you this is, this is who Jesus was from this aspect. Uh-huh. And not necessarily, um, well, it's just like also if, if you were just to witness a crime and you got four or five people watching the same event happen, you're probably going to get differing stories mm -hmm. from the witnesses. But if you take all the witnesses and put them in the room together, you get a pretty good idea. They're not going to be contradictory either. Right. They might have different emphases. Right. And that's a good point is what's, what is exactly contradictions. When people say that the Gospels contradict each other, that's not entirely true. Um, what Some of them leave out details that others include. Uh -huh. And uh, a fallacy of logic would be able to say, well, just because it's left out, like this account says there were two angels present. This one says there was one angel present. Is that a contradiction? Or did one only specifically mention the angel because that angel spoke. <laughs> so it only mentioned one, but more than one was there. Yeah. So we talked, I talked about this some in my logic class about impossibility and mm -hmm. contradictions. And uh, my teacher had a pretty good definition of it. He said, it's only impossible if it's a logical contradiction and in no possible world could these two statements be true at the same time. So he said, technically it's not impossible for someone to rise from the dead because it's not a contradiction with anything. We just think it's impossible because we've never seen it happen. Right, right. That was, that was one point he made to us. <laughs> right. So, and, and there's tons of, 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 when you're looking for something to prove, to prove it wrong. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be, I, I saw all kinds of really, when I was researching the arguments against all this stuff, I saw all kinds of stuff. I was like, yeah, this make, you don't understand what you're reading. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's because you're, people go out of their way to, to, uh, to be argumentative and they're not taking in consideration any of the fact that these, these small details weren't meant to be uh, preserved. It's the, it's the detail of the story itself that, that needed to be uh, preserved. Uh -huh. so, so with all that in mind, let's go over some, um, some specifics that, that people have brought up, you know, controversy about or whatever. And let's talk, okay. ab talk about some of the things that, that uh, are, are claims that there aren't harmony between these things. Well, I think you've got the earlier ones. So why don't you... Okay, Take I'll, it off. I'll I'll start with the the, the big one that, that I wanted to start out with was the lineage of Jesus. Yes. Okay, so this is this is one that everyone picks apart because it's really obvious. You can jump into Matthew one and Luke three, and which are the only two of the four that give us Jesus's lineage. Well, not entirely true. John one says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So that's a lineage. <laughs> 
because of what John's point is, <laughs> Jesus is God. Yeah, and I, I, I saw this in my uh, Christian scriptures class. Um, the critical scholars have their take on this, but you got to take it with a grain of salt because most critical scholars aren't Christians. Right. And so for them, harmony is almost impossible just because they don't believe in um, inspiration or anything like that. Um, and they tend to read, um, I guess, circumstances and stuff too far into the text. Right. Anyway, but their their take on this um, is essentially they read that purpose, like you talked about Luke's purpose of humanity and Matthew's purpose with kingship. They read that into the lineage and say, oh, Matthew made this one up because he wanted to show that Jesus was the rightful king. And Luke made this one up because he wanted to show that Jesus was human. And also, you know, he included these women in there. He included, you know, right. people of less lesser status in their culture. Yeah. So they read that purpose into the lineage, but I feel like they make the text contradict itself when they do that. So. Yeah, well, and plus they're also making the point um, that, like, for example, we don't need to know that Matthew made up a, ge- a genealogy because it's clearly given to us in the Old Testament. He's just re- uh-huh. reiterating it. Yeah. And so, uh, like Matthew, like you said earlier, Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is heir to the throne, that he's mm-hmm. king. So he has to go through the line of Judah to do that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean he just made up a bunch of names and strung them together. Correct. Instead, he goes back and he looks at the lineages and, and gives us a detail that uh-huh. that leads through uh Joseph, who was Jesus's legal father. Now, from mm-hmm. you know, we all know that based on the, the text that Jesus wasn't con- conceived by Joseph, um, so he's not his blood father. But from the Jews' perspective, he's the legal father, and therefore yeah. he would be the heir to Joseph's. Uh, even if he, even if he was a bastard that Joseph brought in, he's still the heir to Joseph's lineage. Mm-hmm. And so that is exactly what uh, what he shows is that uh, he starts at um, was Abraham and goes uh, to David. And David is the breaking point between the two lineages, between Matthew and Luke. Yeah. So David is, um, is obviously a king, mm-hmm. and, but David had several children. And so you've got Solomon on the one hand, right? And then you've got it's Nathan, isn't mm-hmm. it? Correct. So why Solomon? Why choose to go through Solomon? Why did Matthew uh, follow the lineage but under Solomon? Because Solomon sat on the throne. Uh huh. And so the 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 lineage follows through Solomon down to Jeconiah. Now there's an interesting thing that happens in. Um, I believe it's Jeremiah. I can't remember the exact verse, but in 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 the book of Jeremiah, there is a curse put on Jeconiah. So Jeconiah is uh, the last king to sit on the throne of Judah. Of of Judah. Okay. And uh, the the curse. And he gets hauled off to Babylon, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, he gets dethroned. Uh, because uh, he wouldn't uh, listen to Jeremiah's appeals <laughs> of giving in to and he ba- defied him mm-hmm. right, and so he ends up uh, because he wouldn't obey uh, God's will. 
uh, God is angry with him and cast a curse on him. And the curse says that no one in your bloodline will sit on the throne. So um, it's almost like, okay, this is the royal line. Mm-hmm. And God just said, none of your descendants will ever sit on the throne. And so it's like, oh, no. Well, you know, it's foretold that Jesus would be in the lineage of David and that he was going to be king. So he would have to go through this line. And Matthew does trace it through the line, even though this curse is there. Uh-huh. So he, he hits Jeconiah and he continues on through Jeconiah's family. And he ends up at Joseph himself. And uh, so what this does is this gives validity to the fact that Jesus is heir to the throne, at least from a legal standpoint, uh-huh. regardless if God put a curse on it or not. It's still, it's still there. Um, there is one thing that some people will throw out there. There are missing names in the lineage. Um, and, but that's cool. And this is when comparing it to the Old Testament? Yes. Okay. And, and so, but that's cool because, once again, we're not thinking like Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I said my father, I'm referring to John Gaddy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If a Jew said my father, it could be John Gaddy, Robert Gaddy. It could be anybody in my lineage is my father. Yeah, it's, more, it's not like a such and such fathered this person, but it's more like a from... X came yes, Y. Yes. So if you say that Robert begat David, that's a true statement. Even though Robert's not my father, he's my grandfather. Uh-huh. So so it's still good to say that. And the reason why they have that type of lingo that they can use is because of the structural and poetic ways that they word things. Just like there weren't really 12 tribes of Israel. There were 13. 13. But there's are always numbered 12 for certain reasons at certain times. So it's, it's the same type of concept. So you, you have these names that were missing from the account. Um, and you have Joram, uh, really, um, it says Joram begat Uzziah in, 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 in Matthew. But really, Joram begat uh, Ahaz- Ahaziah, and Ahaziah begat Joash, and Joash begat Amaziah, and Amaziah begat Uzziah. So there was, mm-hmm. there was four that were missing there. The, the point is, for one, these four kings were evil. And, <laughs> and so they were... So they get cut out of the lineage. <laughs> right, they were omitted from it because it, they weren't worthy to be mm-hmm. listed in it. Um, secondly, they, they, were, um, they were omitted because he's trying to do something else with numbers. Mm-hmm. There are exactly 42... Gene, uh, generations in this lineage, and that is important because that is a product of seven. Okay, or it's divisive uh-huh. di- divided by seven. Um, he actually divides it into fourteen generations and fourteen generations and and all that sort of thing. So um, that's important because fourteen is a derivative of seven. So uh, these are called um, tesseradicads. When Whoa! You, when, yes, <laughs> when you put something in in groups of fourteen, that's a, that's a, a, a tesseratocad. Uh, not that we would normally use that term very much, but the Jews, it was an important. Go to the donut store. I'd like a tesseratocad. <laughs> yeah, of donuts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so there was 
there was four the divide these up into 14 was very important and so to do that he's like well i'll admit these evil kings there's no sense <laughs> in them being in there that way the number is still numbered correctly and it's not cheating it's not it, it's not lying it's not mm-hmm. it's not any of these things that people might say against it it's just the way of maintaining the record accurately but yet still making it symbolic of something yeah so um, so he, he, he does all this, and uh, then if we look at Luke, uh, like you said, it, it goes backwards, which is also unusual. Uh, it starts with, with Jesus, and then goes to Joseph, and then goes to Eli. Well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> the, the, other, the other genealogy didn't do that. But uh, it goes through this different lineage uh, to, to Joseph uh, from Eli, now, um, the, the prevalent theory here is that Eli was actually his father-in-law. Uh-huh. So it I've heard that before. That I think you have maybe sisters of Mary mentioned, but no brothers, mm-hmm. which could make Joseph a legal heir right. of Mary's father. Right, exactly. So this is, this is really kind of cool, actually, because it's like God doing an end around on that curse that he threw on Jeconiah. <laughs> <laughs> because what what uh, Luke does is once again he's not focused on the kingship of Jesus. He's focused on the humanity of Jesus. So he went uh-huh. through the actual bloodline that led to Jesus Christ himself. And so, it's still royal even though it's it's a different one. Yes. But Jesus actually has the blood of David in him as well as the legal lineage. Uh-huh. Okay, so the blood of David obviously comes through Mary's side of the family and runs up and it, 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 it only differs at David. Instead of going through Solomon, who was the king, he went through one of the lesser sons of David, which was Nathan. And so there's no contradiction happening here. Mm-hmm. What is happening is them structuring the lineage that's accurate in order to make a point of what they're trying to make about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a huge difference from being a contradiction. Yeah, and so often scholars, scholarship will look at that point and get that, but they'll throw out accuracy, right? Because they all right. they're seeing is the point. Yeah, but they're actually accuracy and the point are together, not in conflict. Yeah, right, right. It's just, it's just that I mean, just omitting those names is not you know falsifying the record. And and there's actually a name that's that is if you read your uh, traditional King James. And you go back, you'll find an, also a name missing from Luke's genealogy. And once again, it's not an, it, just because a name is missing doesn't mean it's inaccurate because it's still good that he's still in the lineage. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the difference is if you read the Septuagint version, it's going to coincide with Luke exactly. If you use the Masoretic text, there's a missing, there's an extra name in the Masoretic mm-hmm. text. So, obviously, the New Testament of the first century was Septuagint because they were Greek-speaking people. And uh, so, it would make sense that he's quoting from, uh-huh. from that lineage. So, um, so, anyway, that's all I've got on the, on the lineage of Jesus. Uh, did you go ahead and jump in on one of them that you've got there? Okay. Um, next, let's go to Matthew 5 and Luke 6. Okay. And look at... Look at the Sermon on the Mount versus the Sermon on the Plain. Okay. So this is one some people will bring up sometimes. Um, 
And uh, so you've got these two accounts. They're really similar, but they differ in a couple ways. Um, in Matthew, you've got the Beatitudes, right? Mm-hmm. And in Luke, you've got the Beatitudes, but you also have curses after it. You've got blessings and then curses. Um, and in Matthew, obviously, he sits down on this, you know, on this side of a mountain. And in Luke, he records them, them sitting down in a plane. Right. And so I guess you just have, um, <clears throat> this is where some, uh, some scholars start pointing to this document that we've probably talked about before called Q. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the so-called sayings of Jesus. And they think, oh, there must be something because, okay, Matthew has these sayings. Luke has these sayings but they have different frame frameworks around them. And so they, you know, for scholars, there's no possible way that Matthew and Luke could have the same stuff <laughs> without <Right>. depending <laughs> on the same uh, common source. Right. Um, but I guess the way I see this, it just makes a ton of sense. If you think about it, what is, what is Jesus? He's an itinerant teacher going around the countryside. Right. Um, ministering to different people, going to different cities, healing, teaching, um, doing his Jesus thing around um, Judea and Galilee. And so what it seems like to me is you don't have so much of a contradiction between two accounts. These are actually two different episodes because different people Jesus encountered, whether they were in this town or that town, needed to hear Jesus's message. And so maybe... The details were a little different because he was preaching on a different occasion, not a scripted sermon, but he was just preaching as the Spirit led him. Right. And so he gives a message to one town, he goes to a different town, he gives another message, a lot of the same stuff because the Lord's Prayer is important. Both towns need to hear it. (laughs) Right. But it's not identical, and maybe those are two different records of really similar teachings. Right. Well, and that's also, like, take today, I mean, um, you know... At Easter time, you know, I went up there with 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 you guys at Broken Bow, and um, we had you know I I, I gave a, a a sermon there. That was that that was not the first time I've given that sermon. Uh huh. I've given that sermon before. <laughs> but if you transcripted it and looked at those two manuscripts, they wouldn't be identical. No, no, they have the same outline. Same outline. <laughs> but they're not exactly the same, and and so it's very plausible. That that's exactly what's going on. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't really see that as a um, a contradiction at all. And another thing that can be thrown in the mix there as well is that Matthew was a publican, and by trade he would have known shorthand because mm-hmm. that's part of what. And we talked about this when we yeah. when we did our uh, uh, authorship study, and so. Obviously, if a guy who knows shorthand is sitting there listening to a sermon and he's writing it down, he's probably going to remember it more accurately anyway, word for word. I mean, than the than another guy who's sitting there without those same skills. Uh huh. And so, I mean, it could and easily be that. That explains really well why Matthew has these big chunks of what Jesus taught, big, right. more discourses than any other gospel. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's that's actually really good. Um, one of them that I've got also is the details of, of Jesus's birth. Um, first off, Mark and John omit the birth completely. You know, why? Well, uh-huh. 
goes back to what we were saying earlier. Mark wasn't trying to get anything across by talking about the birth of Jesus. Uh-huh. It doesn't mean that he wasn't privy to it. It doesn't mean that um, that that he didn't have enough detail or whatever to do it. It's just it didn't fit into what he was trying to accomplish. And same way with John. Uh, like I said, John one can be a lineage if we wanted to to you know be really myth- mystical about it. But um, but obviously. He, they're leaving it out because it doesn't fit into mm-hmm. their argument. And I also read some cool stuff about um, the origin and purpose of Mark. Uh-huh. And I mean, uh, you can you can trust Eusebius or not. I, I know <laughs> my professor has said he's not, you know, he's not 100% accurate on everything. But Eusebius um, quotes a guy by the name of Papias, um, and he is said to be a disciple of Peter, and uh, he's definitely a guy writing, I think, from Rome around the 100 or 110 range, and Papias um, says that Mark is based on the preaching of Peter. Right. And it seems like he he points to it being published and spread on the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, which makes total sense because, okay, they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching death and resurrection of Jesus. That gets so emphasized so heavily in Mark. Because, you know, when Peter preaches to the crowd, he's going to preach the death and resurrection. So that's that's a big thing. And um, so anyway, you have kind of this idea of Peter and Paul, you know, are looking at their impending death. And Mark's wanting to preserve that preaching. He's wanting to preserve the gospel firsthand. And so that's what he puts into his narrative. That's what the people right. need to hear. That's what Peter said that needs to be written down and... Yes. Kept so the church can still read it and still understand all of that. Yeah, I think that's, that's really cool. Um, if if we look at some of the arguments against the the contradictions in the birth, uh, most of it has to do with. I mean, there's all kinds of little things, but uh, the big one that comes up is that um, Luke records the uh, forty day purification thing um, that happens at the temple. Um, where uh, they meet Anna and Simeon, and mm-hmm. and all that stuff happens um, in in Jerusalem, and the argument is, well, wait a second. Um, Matthew gives us this story about Jesus being born and the Magi coming and um, leading Herod to, or they end up pointing to Bethlehem and leading Herod to kill the 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 infants. And mm-hmm. they're, they flee to Egypt. So how can, how can that all happen? And in 40 days, they end up at, at Jerusalem. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, so how do we, how do we um, put all this together? Well, I think part of the biggest problem that comes out of that is we assume that Matthew 2, uh, the stuff with the Magi and stuff, we assume that happened the night the Jesus night was birth. born, which it, it didn't. There's nothing in the passage that implies that. Uh-huh. The only thing that implies that is our little nativity scenes <laughs> at Christmas time. Um, the Magi did not show up at the stables, at the manger, or any of that. Uh, that is a fabrication of our mixed up history and our messed up, tra- uh, messed up traditions. But what uh, what actually happens? Is this this thing where um, the Magi show up, and it's interesting. Herod seems to be totally taken 
off guard by this. He doesn't know what they're talking about. Where, uh-huh. Where's the king? That's the question is, where's this, the one born king? And, of course, that starts to make him defensive because he is an heir. <laughs> and he's going to die soon. <laughs> so, so he wants to make sure that this, this doesn't interrupt things for him. And um, so he calls all the scribes and Pharisees together to find out, okay, what's going on? And they have this prophecy that about Bethlehem. So he sends them to Bethlehem, and they go there. And it says that the star reappeared that they had seen before. Uh-huh. So it's the second appearance of the star. It's not the same one, just, you know, happening along. Um, and it leads them to a house, not to the stable, not to... It leads them to a house uh-huh. where, um, where Jesus is. And uh, so, and, and I believe that is in... Uh, Matthew 2 and 11, it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then they offered up their treasures that they had brought. Um, Then, um, whenever they don't show back up, because an angel comes and says, Hey, Herod's not going to treat you well. (laughs) You need to get out of here. And uh, so they don't show back up, and Herod gets mad. Notice what it says there in Matthew 2, verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, uh, which he really wasn't, but he thought he was, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Wow. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. One of the questions that he had asked them that we don't get written in here when did the star show up? When did you see the star? When did it first show up? And so he did ask him that. And as a response to that, he orders all children two years old or younger to be killed. So yeah. that implies to us that this was could have been up to two years after the birth of Jesus. Okay, so I guess the only question for me becomes, um, so then I guess he would be born and then dedicated... And then this whole episode hep- happens. Yes. So I guess the only question is, what is he doing in Bethlehem again? Uh, good. That that's uh, one of the standard questions that comes up because the way it's worded in Luke two and thirty nine, mm-hmm. it says, and then uh, this is like after the the forty day uh-huh. um, uh, consecration at the temple. Uh, it says, and then when all the law of the Lord had been fulfilled, they went to Nazareth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now. The, the question is, like you said, what were they doing in Bethlehem for two years if this was a two-year period? And it probably wasn't quite two years because, under once again, the way Jews think, if you were over a year old, you were two years old. Yeah, and Herod is probably covering all his bases yes. also. He doesn't know exactly when this child was born, so he's given them a little bit of, mm-hmm. of leeway. I think a lot of scholars tend to think that this was about uh, two months maybe. After Jesus was born, okay, and that he's just trying to 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 uh, to cover all his bases. But I, I got a commentary here that I think is really cool. Uh, this book is called "The Fourfold Gospel" by J.W. McGarvey, and it is really neat because it takes all four gospels, puts them into a single narrative, and with footnotes lets you know where the passages are coming from, and mm-hmm. then interspersed throughout it is uh, some commentary about exactly what's going on. And the commentary that he includes here about this is, he says, as Matthew has spoken of Joseph residing at Bethlehem 
and he did reside there for quite a while after the birth of Jesus. The use of the word thither implies that Joseph planned to return to, to that town. Mary had kindred somewhere in the neighborhood, according to Luke, the first chapter, and doubtless both parents thought that David's city was the most fitting place for the nurture of David's heir. Hmm. So prior to them running off to Egypt to get away from the oppression, they obviously thought, okay, well, we came here for the census, uh-huh. uh, which was not a requirement, by the way. Uh, a lot of times there's all this debate about Rome never required Jews to go back to their ancestral city for their, <laughs> mm. even though Luke says that they went back to their ancestral city because of the tax, uh, because of the census. Um, but it was oftentimes from the Jewish standpoint, a better way of doing the census. So they allowed them to do that. Okay. So they, they, they did go to Bethlehem to the city of, of basically Joseph's hometown and or where he came from and mm-hmm. and um, and did the, the census thing there. So they apparently thought, well, while we're here, we got a young child. There's no sense in traveling back. Let's just, you know, settle down here. Uh, and, and what changed that was obviously this flight to Egypt and the scare and all that because whenever they got done, it said that Joseph was scared to go back because he had heard rumors about Herod's son who was taking over and he was going to be just as bad and et cetera, et cetera. So that's when they went to Nazareth instead because Nazareth was kind of hidden in the hills Mm -hmm. and it was north in Galilee, whereas Bethlehem is right there by Jerusalem, just south of Jerusalem. And so uh, I I really don't think that there's any contradictory contradicting narrative that's Mm -hmm. happening. It's just that Luke omits all of this stuff that happened with the the killing of the children uh-huh. and the flight to Egypt and all that. But remember, Matthew is trying to fulfill scripture, I mean, prophecy about the Messiah. And that explains with his, his emphasis on kingship. Again, it's a challenge to the current guy who's on the throne, but then it's also a way to emphasize Jesus is a king whose kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. Right. Right. So, I mean, it it just makes perfect sense that he's talking this way. He's talking about these things because they lead to Jesus as being the king and being the Messiah. And so that's why these things are important in his narrative that aren't necessarily important in Luke's narrative. So when Luke says to fulfill, then when all that had been done to fulfill the law of the Lord, they went to Nazareth. What Luke could have been meaning is not necessarily that going and being dedicated at the temple was fulfilling the law of the Lord, but that when everything had been fulfilled in the law of the Lord, meaning the Old Testament, meaning the Torah, meaning the hmm. prophecies that had been spoken about Messiah, when the things that uh, that Matthew talked about that I'm not going to detail, <laughs> hmm. when all that has finished, they went to Nazareth. So it could be read either way. Uh, so it doesn't really... Yeah. Contradictory, and, and also from reading the beginning of Luke, it seems like he knows about Matthew or Mark or maybe both because he talks about other people already setting down an orderly account. Mm. So I'm going to write to you also, Theophilus, so you can understand. Yes, and, oh, and there's one thing about that that is important to note. A lot of critics will say, you see right there, Luke says he's going to be chronological in this, in this telling. And then they bring up the point that uh, when... 
when John the Baptist is arrested, it then says that um, he uh, was baptized by John. So the argument that's being made is that um, that this is can't be chronological because mm-hmm. he's been John the Baptist has been arrested, but here it's saying that Jesus is being baptized by him. Well, it is casting back. It says when he was baptizing, he baptized Jesus, and it tells the story. So, mm-hmm. so their, their argument there is, well, in one place Luke says this is chronological, and then he says this. Well, it also seems like a misunderstanding of the word orderly, because that doesn't mean that everything that I write in the text happened right after the thing that I wrote right before <laughs> the text, which happened the thing before I... Right, right. It, it's just a nitpicky way of, of trying to make the argument against you know you know finding yeah. finding things that contradict uh so uh okay so that's all i got on the birth thing uh you got anything else over there uh yeah i have one that i don't exactly have a good answer to but i wanted to see what you thought about it and um so i'll go to john 2 13 first if i can find my bible on here okay so in john 2 13 it says the passover of the jews was at hand and jesus went up to jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So the point is, this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, Right after the, he calls a couple disciples, and there's the wedding at Cana, and then there's this. Okay. But then, go over to... Mark 11 and 15. I uh, just, just lost my spot in this Bible. <laughs> I'll do it on the computer. Okay. Yeah, so you've got another temple cleansing here. Uh-huh. But because Mark is essentially... Um, half of Mark is the last week of Jesus. By the time you get to chapter 11, we're in Jesus' last week. So this is... Uh, after Palm Sunday and everything, right? He's going to come and cleanse the temple. Um, so I guess my question is, and I don't really know, is this something that John chooses to p- put at the beginning of his gospel because of he wants to make a point early on about Jesus and about his character, or are there two of these? Is this something that happens twice in Jesus's ministry? With the driving, yeah, out of the, um, it's a confusing thing. Well, Jesus' ministry was like three years long, mm-hmm. so he would have had three opportunities around the Passover. Three Passovers to go turn some tables <laughs> to do this. Uh, it's 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 a good question. I'd, I'd have to, you know, I was trying to see what uh, what this this fourfold gospel where it put that, you know, in reference to the other uh, events. Generally, how I've kind of read John is most of John seems to take place near the end of his ministry. Like, there's very little Mm -hmm. at the first of Jesus' ministry. He kind of skips over a large amount of things um, that the Synoptic Gospels cover, and he jumps straight into that last week uh, really, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. And so it could be the same thing. It's just a, 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 a time shift um, type of thing that's happening there, um, but I, I think it's gonna. 
I honestly don't think it's going to be contradicting as yeah. much as it is just trying to find out where, mm-hmm. you know, it lies. So we, do you see a possibility of two also? I kind of doubt it. Just because just because of the, of the impact that they would have had, you know, the one time <laughs> they did it. Uh-huh. Because you think if it was the second time he had done it, they'd be like, oh, no, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know <laughs> if if it had happened twice. I really kind of just think it's a chronological. Uh, uh, again, these guys aren't after trying to get everything in its right place chronologically as much as they are trying to make a point. Yeah, and also um, my college pastor, uh, he said something I thought that was really wise about inerrancy and the way we the way we deal with the scriptures and the way mm-hmm. we treat inerrancy. He said the Bible is inerrant in everything it intends to say exactly what it's trying to say he goes does that mean that when jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest seed that for us to believe in errancy requires us to say oh there must scientifically not be a single seed in the world smaller (laughs) than the mustard seed (laughs) right no jesus is making a point jesus is making a theological point and he's not he's not erring and then the author recording that is recording that theological point and that's what we need to pay attention to so if the scripture is intending to say these things happen in this order, we need to believe that. But if it's intending to say this happened, oh, and this happened too, and this happened. Yes. And by the way, they may not have happened consecutively. Or mm-hmm. I mean, even in my own life, if I'm looking back and going to tell a story about my own life, I may tell a story that happened two years after uh, another story and not even really think about it because, you know, really 20 years ago is kind of a blur at this point. <laughs> I don't know what happened in 1993 versus 92. <laughs> I mean, it could be yeah. it could be the same thing, you know. And I may get it out of order or whatever. So I I, um, I just don't think that that it is overly important to make sure you get these things in the right order as much as they are, as long as it's told that this did happen. Yeah, and I, and I think that's kind of of the big one on that one. And um, I'll look and see in here. Um, what what their take on it is, but I'm sure obviously they're going to put that story in here somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> for each gospel and it and whether or not it's putting it in twice or or not. Um, the last one I got is the resurrection because there's a lot of, of people complaining about uh, well who was there uh, mm-hmm. for, first off at the empty tomb uh, w- was it Mary that was there or was it Mary and the other Mary mother mm-hmm. of James. And, uh, you know, and, and because depending on which one you read, there's a different list of and women. Also, and also, Mark, like, what the heck? It just it gives you the resurrection. <laughs> They're like, empty tomb, boom, it's yeah, over. Yeah, end of story. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's, um, like, you know, one account mentions the... Um, uh, like three or four women, and uh-huh. one of them only mentioned Mary. Uh, like John only mentions. And do they Mary. all mention the so, women? And uh, I believe they all mentioned them, just not in the, uh, not consistently. Okay. And um, th- so the, the the question that comes up is, you know, is is leaving one of these women out con- constitute a, um, a a contradiction? Um, I was looking at some of the commentary that I've got here. Um, it says there, if we look at, and this is, is I'm, g- I'm going to actually read some of this because it's kind of cool. This this um, this narrative comes from Matthew uh, 
reading Roman numerals. <laughs> 28, uh, 1 through 8. Mark, uh, that's 16, 1 through 8. Uh, Luke 24, 1 through 8 and 12. Uh, John 20 and 1 through 10. Okay, so he takes... All of them. He takes all of this all right. and puts it together into one little narrative. Um, <clears throat> and... It says, and very early on, the first day of the week, when they came to the tomb, this is, of course, King James that he's splicing up here. It says, mm-hmm. and very early on, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun was risen, and they were saying among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the tomb? And uh, let me go back just a little bit so we can see who it's talking about. Uh, but now, late on the Sabbath day, and when the Sabbath was passed, so those are two different accounts, you know, put together. Uh, late on the Sabbath day, and when the Sabbath was passed, on the first day of the week, as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week, at early dawn, while it was yet dark, cometh, came, Mary Magdalene, early, and the other Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, unto the tomb, bringing, brought, the spices which they had prepared. Okay, so that's kind of mm-hmm. how it sets the the stage here, and it's kind of confusing to read it that way because it's throwing in. It's like he's taking every single word from all four of yes, them, yes, and putting them together to try and 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 there's little footnotes here telling you which one mm-hmm. he's he's pulling from. But uh, interesting to note, when is also a big thing. One of them says now late on the Sabbath day, another one says when the Sabbath was passed on the first day of the week. And then another one says, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. So, uh, oh, and then the next one says, while it was still yet dark. <laughs> mm-hmm. So people can argue, oh, well, which is it? Is it at dawn or is it at dark or whatever? And it, it really could all mean the same thing, depending on your perspective, especially as a Jew, of uh, when it... Well, this is also isn't talking about one single instant in time. It's a period of... I don't know, an hour, two hours, when yeah. they're going to prepare that and take him to the Right. Tomb. Obviously, Bethany is a little ways away. So it could be they left the house at one point. It took them an hour to get there. Mm-hmm. They left at dark. They got there at dawn. Uh, I mean, there's just all kinds of things that can play into that. Um, so anyway, it lists this, these women here. And his, his commentary says, John mentions Mary Magdalene alone, though she came with the rest of the women. As she was the one who reported to John and Peter... He describes her actions and makes no mentions of the others. So, in other words, John is more focused on Mary because she's the one who runs back and tells Peter and John. Mm -hmm. So, he's not really overly concerned with it, the fact that there was more women there. He's only bringing in the one that fits into his narrative. Yeah. Uh, Later on, he says, though Mary came with the other women, she departed at once. And while the others tarried, as the sequel shows, the narrative proceeds to tell what happened uh, to the other women after Mary had departed. So you've got this one story of the angels and all that, and you've got Mary running back to the... So there's uh-huh. a, so it all fits together. It's just not quite as the same. It's not exactly the same. It seems to me like so many of these criticisms focus on details, and they treat it as a contradiction when maybe one gospel has half the details and the other one has more details, or one gospel has this detail and one gospel has another detail, when the reality is they're not details in conflict, they're just different ones that were presented mm-hmm. for whatever reason that the author had that, you know, it, written that detail written down maybe, or it's what he remembered, or it's what the Holy Spirit led him to put in. Yeah, the things account. that stuck with him yeah. in, in the narrative, and the things that, that, that fit into the point he's trying to make anyway, in, in or that he's leaning on. Um, 
So anyway, there's also uh, a thing there with the angels. One of them mentions one angel. One of them mentions two angels. Were the guards there? Were they, you know, asleep there? Um, and the answer is all of the above, because it's in mm-hmm. because those things are all taking into account. It's just that not all the gospel writers chose to bring in the details. Well, there were guards asleep over here mm-hmm. while this was happening, or there was two angels, but only one of them spoke. Uh, you know, Mark is just focused on the one who spoke. And, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, but anyway, um, the, the, the main thing that I think that we need to get to is that depth and validity are added because of these small differences. Like if everyone showed up to a trial and they had exactly the same story with no variance, we would think something you was up. you got to be suspicious. <laughs> right. You would, you would be like, mm, well, wait, that's, that's too accurate. I mean, there's just too, you guys are really getting it too, too in, close together, uh, like almost scary. Um, whereas whenever we see, as long as the main points aren't contradicting, differences uh, actually can enhance the story and give us a broader view of what happened because we hear the narrative from different points of view. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, that's, that's really uh, about all I had. Uh, there's a quote here by Wilbur Smith, um, theologian of days gone by, and he said, In these fundamental truths, there are absolutely no contradictions. The so-called variations in the narratives are only the details which were mostly vividly impressed on one mind or another of the witnesses of our Lord's resurrection or on the mind of the writers of these four respective Gospels. And Mm -hmm. I think that's it in a nutshell, really. I mean, they are in harmony, and they give us a fuller view of Christ because they were told from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, did you have anything else there? Um, no, I think that's it. All righty. Well, the Theonauts are part of the GCT network. And sorry, Riley, I don't have the script for you. <laughs> Actually, we haven't had one for a few weeks. I keep forgetting to print it. <laughs> <laughs> but you can go to gctnetwork.com and you can sign up for uh, the newsletter there and learn about us and see what the other shows are doing and Go in there and listen to Finding Christ in Cinema and uh, listen to them talk about um, Finding Christ in the movies that we watch all the time. Uh, you can visit us on Facebook.com slash Theonauts. You can uh, tweet to us at Theonautical. Um, you can email us. <laughs> you can email us at uh, Theonauts at GCTNetwork.com. Call us on our voicemail line at 972-885-7270. And uh, don't forget to tune in to us next week and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us. So, Riley, thanks for being here, brother. No problem. Being a surrogate Jeremiah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be hearing from you more this summer. I'm looking forward to <laughs> while it. You, while your schedule allows. All right. God bless. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your great commission. This is your great commission transmission. At GCTNetwork.com. Transmission. This is your great commission transmission.